Hallelujah. God is on the move, guys. He ain't dead. He's alive. It's true. So, um, uh, my wife is one of those kind of really creative people. Uh, she likes to ask all these bizarre questions to prompt me to have conversations because I'm not very, believe it or not, I'm extremely quiet. Like, uh, most of my life I just sit there and I'm silent. Um, and Taylor's like, hey, let's talk about something. And I'm like, okay, what do you want to talk about? She's like, well, if you were a butterfly, no. <laughs> and uh, one question that she likes to ask uh, that I think is particularly fascinating is, if you could set up a, a teleportation device in two different places on planet Earth, where would you most commonly want those two teleportation devices? Or if you could, uh, yeah, like that's one of my favorites. And I, I think it's interesting because it tells you what's the most important thing to people. Like what place is most important, home or, or work or school or maybe their heart is in some other place around the world. Man, I, if I had 20 teleportation devices, I would just go to all these different places that I'm traveling to all the time and not have to be on the airplane for 20 hours. Like that would <laughs> be what I would do. Um, it, it prompted me to think of a, another question. If your house was on fire, what would you grab? And people will answer this question in any number of ways, right? The, uh, maybe you're uh, like a type A person like me and you would grab the important documents, the birth certificates, the tax forms, all of those kinds of things. Maybe you're sentimental and you would grab the family photo album. Maybe it would be something, uh, a special family memory from years and years ago. It, that question prompts us to ask, what are the most important things in our life? And I think that we should ask ourselves, what does the Bible say should be the most important thing in our life? And uh, Tom already read this passage, so you guys know where I'm going. But if you wouldn't mind flipping with me in your Bible, the 1 Corinthians chapter 15. An easy way to remember this chapter of the Bible is it's the gospel chapter. This is the, the good news about the gospel. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, here is what Paul says beginning in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that on the third day, in accordance... Uh, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel. Now, uh, I, I remember not too long ago, I was at this Christian camp, and I was preaching that week, and at the end of the week, one of the middle schoolers who was part of this camp came running up to me and he said, Nathan, Nathan, I wanted to tell you that I'm going on a mission trip to Peru. And I was like, wow, man, that's great news. I'm so excited to hear that you're going on that mission trip. And he's like a little middle schooler. I was like, when I was your age, I totally wouldn't have done anything like that. Uh, I couldn't be bothered to leave Colorado at that age. Like, I, I just, I didn't want anything to do with that. So cool that you have a heart for that. Uh, do you mind if I ask you, what are you going to do while you're there? And he said, well, you know, we're going to love the people and we're going to preach the gospel. And uh, my heart was filled with joy because I think that how you bring legitimacy to a short-term mission is by preaching the gospel because preaching the gospel brings a long-term eternal impact to your work. And I was like, wow, that's great. 
And then I said, could I ask you just one more question? He said, yeah. I said, well, if I was one of the Peruvian men or women standing in front of you, how would you share the gospel with me? And he suddenly froze. The student knew the word gospel, and he knew that we were supposed to preach the gospel, but he didn't really know what the gospel was. He didn't know what to say or how to say it, so uh, I ended up guiding him through this passage, these three simple concepts that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and three days later rose again. And by the end of our conversation, he could easily share that with me, and I'm sure that he shared it with those Peruvian people. This conversation prompted me to think a lot. It prompted me to think, do we really know what the gospel is? Is it possible that we too have missed this really profound but also super simple message? To really understand the gospel, you, you got to start with the Greek word. And if any Greek nerds out there, the Greek word for the gospel is euangelion. And the literal translation of this Greek word is good news. And I love that translation of that word because that's really what it is. It's, it, it's good news. We, the, the word gospel, <laughs> it's sometimes lost, right? We say this word, we, we think we know what it means, but we don't really truly know what it means. And so I, I love that the, the literal translation of this word gospel is good news. And in the ancient Greek-speaking world of Jesus and Paul, this word, this word was used almost exclusively in the proclamation of new kings. So, when Paul uses the word gospel to describe the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, what he's actually proclaiming is that Jesus is the king. And he's not the king of some earthly, geographical, geopolitical kingdom. He's the king of the kingdom, the whole kingdom, his kingdom. He's the king of the kingdom. It, this is really good news. But he gets more specific, right? He, he gets really direct. So what is the first part of the gospel? The first part of the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins. Now, uh, if you're anything like me, you like to play games. I, I remember this one time we were in Africa. This was my very first mission trip, and uh, I'd never been there before, didn't know what to expect. And we were playing in this village, and just randomly, because we were foreigners, we had this big group of kids all around us. And we thought, oh, well, let's take advantage of the opportunity and do something with these kids. How about, how about an impromptu VBS? So we said every good VBS has some awesome games. And the tribe that we were hanging out with is called the Maasai, and they're famous for jumping. So we thought, let's play a jumping game. So we went and we grabbed two sticks. And uh, we just put the two sticks on the ground, a little bit apart, and uh, had all the kids line up. And what they would do, if I could get it to line up there, yeah, what they would do, they would all stand in line, and then they would run, and they would jump, and they would cross the gap. And anybody who was successful would go on to the next round, and anybody who failed would stop. And we ended up extending it and extending it and extending it and extending it. I mean, these kids were rock stars, like, like Olympic-style jumpers. And uh, eventually, we get down to the final three students, obviously the older, older kids. And uh, they, I remember the first guy, he takes a run, and he jumps, and he falls short. He, he doesn't quite make it over the line. And then another kid runs, and he jumps, and 
doesn't quite make it in the third, runs and jumps and also just doesn't quite make it. This is a perfect illustration of our sin. We, uh, we often like to think in our culture, well, if I just say enough good things or do enough good things or give enough money to the church or show up enough times on a Sunday morning, uh, God, God will love me then. Uh, somehow I'll be, over to, be able to overcome my sin then. But in reality, the sin gap, the, the, the separation between us and God is just far too wide for us to be able to overcome by our sheer force of will. And the biblical illustration is a lot different than our little game. In our little game, the kids miss the mark by just a little bit. In, in the biblical illustration, if you could imagine me chucking this through the wall and across the ocean and all, all the way over to, you know, East Africa or East Asia, like, that's the separation. It's an impossible gap. There's no way anybody could possibly cross this gap. The Bible teaches us that our sin separates us from God, Isaiah 59, 2. It also teaches us that the wages of our sin is death. So you guys know what wages are. Uh, everybody here probably gets a paycheck. I remember the very first time I ever got a paycheck. That was a terrible day, guys. Like, I had never paid taxes out of a paycheck before, and uh, I worked for two solid weeks, 40-hour weeks, first time in my whole life that I had ever done that, and I look at my paycheck, and it's like 30% of my paycheck had gone to the government. I was like, oh, man, I don't like the wages. Anyway, so the wages of our sin is death. That's what we earn. But Jesus overcomes both of those terrible consequences of our sin, the separation and the wages of sin leading to death. The Bible teaches us in Romans 3, 24, that Jesus paid the full price for our sins. So we don't, we don't have to pay the price for our sins because Jesus paid the price for our sins. And then again, in 1 Peter 3, 18, it says that Christ died to bring us to God. So both of the terrible consequences of our sin, the fact that we've been separated from God, and the fact that we uh, deserve death have been paid for by Jesus on the cross. The reality is, that because we can't get to God, no matter how good we are, no matter how many great things we say, no matter what, because we can't get to God, God comes to us. And if you want to know what makes Christianity unique among the world's religions, that is the one thing that makes Christianity unique. It's not that we have good moral people. It's not that uh, we have like really great stories that are compelling. It's the fact that Jesus didn't expect us to get to him, he came to us. The second part of the gospel that Paul writes is that, and Christ was buried. Now, uh, papyrus back in the day was this extremely, extremely expensive thing. And uh, the fact that Paul would waste ink and paper writing and he was buried is very peculiar because of, we're thinking to ourselves, of course Christ was buried. That's like a big deal. Like, duh, you bury dead people. Thank you a lot, Captain Obvious. But there's no wasted words in Scripture. So why did Paul say, and Christ was buried? Well, here's what I think. I think it's for that exact reason. He wanted to communicate that he was actually dead. Because we don't bury almost dead people. We don't bury people who are 90% of the way dead. We bury dead people. That's what we do. And 
Christ was fully dead. One, from the very beginning after Christ's resurrection, there were people denying that it had actually happened. And one of the ways that they denied that it, the whole resurrection thing had actually happened was that Jesus was still alive when they buried him. No, he was dead. The Romans were experts at crucifixion. Some of us have it in our heads that uh, Jesus was the only one to ever die on a cross. No, 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 no. Uh, the Romans used this form of death for loads of people. They were experts, experts, experts at it. In fact, we have a word to describe what death on a cross was like. The word excruciating comes from dying on a cross, excruciating. In order to be put to death on a cross, we know from the story that Jesus was whipped with a cat of nine tails, 40 minus one times, 39 times. So this whip was designed to rip and tear at skin. It would land, implant itself in the skin, and then as they tore it away, it was designed to tear away at flesh. In Isaiah, the Bible says that Jesus barely looked human. I imagine it's because at one point, the cat of nine tails might have hit his face and tore away at it. Then he was commanded to carry his cross up to Golgotha, which was several miles away. And there at Golgotha, they nailed him to the cross. And uh, historically speaking, we know that the average distance between nail holes on a cross was about six feet. But the average height of a male back then was like 5'8 to 5'10. So that means that most likely they had to dislocate Jesus' shoulder in order to nail him to the tree. And when they put the nails through his hands, it went through this thing called the median nerve. The median nerve is what holds all of the very sensitive nerves that go to the ends of your fingers. And in order to breathe, we have it in our mind that Jesus just kind of sat there on the tree, but he didn't. Like, it was this up and down movement that allowed him to breathe. And what ended up killing you on a cross was that you would asphyxiate because you could no longer inhale or exhale. And so your lungs would fill with water and you would die. No one survived crucifixion. You always died. The reason that it's rated as one of the most excruciating ways to die is because of how long it took. Just insane pain for hour after hour after hour. Jesus really was dead. But the story, of course, doesn't end there. Thank the Lord, the story doesn't end there. Three days later, the Bible teaches us that Jesus rose from the dead. And you can't preach the gospel and forget this part. We forget it all the time. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, which is so true and amazing and great news. But do not forget that he rose from the dead three days later. Because, because he rose from the dead three days later, we can have a relationship with him. If he didn't rise from the dead, he's still, he's decomposed somewhere. He's dust, he's nothing. And on top of that, he's not what he claimed to be. Paul writes this later on in 1 Corinthians, in verses 16 through 19, 1 Corinthians 15, 16 through 19. You can read it by yourselves. But basically, here's what it says. If Christ didn't raise from the dead, that means our sins are not paid for. That means we have no hope of a bodily resurrection ourselves. 
Like, because that's our ultimate hope as Christians, not that we would have a spirit separated from our body and we would live with God in heaven for eternity. Like, the, the hope of Christians is that we have a resurrected body just like Jesus' resurrected body. In Revelation 21 and 22, at the end of the story, the, the, the picture that we get is of, uh, of the, the body of Christ being raised to life and living with Christ here on earth forever. Like, it's not, this, uh, it's not this, like, hang out in the clouds kind of thing that we have in our heads. Anyway, so if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we have no hope of a bodily resurrection. There is no eternal life. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he isn't who he claimed to be. He was just some insane dude who claimed to be the Son of God but wasn't actually the Son of God. The resurrection has been called the linchpin of Christianity. The people here, everybody here is probably familiar with that term, linchpin, but the idea is, you know, back when we had wagon wheels, like wheels on wagons to get from place to place, uh, if you just put a wheel on an axle, anybody know what happens to it if you just put it on? Falls off. Falls off, exactly. So a linchpin is you drill a hole through the axle and stick a piece of wood in it to hold the wagon wheel on. That's a linchpin. It holds the whole thing together. If you don't have the resurrection, you don't have what you need in order to be a Christian. In verse 19, Paul says, if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, we are most of all to be pitied. We're the most pitiful people around, proclaiming a false God and believing in a false resurrection. But if he did rise from the dead... It makes all the difference. If he did rise from the dead, our faith is founded on the rock who is Jesus. Our lives will ultimately end with eternity with Jesus someday, and uh, our sins are paid for. That's really, really fantastic good news. No wonder he used the word euangelion to describe it. No wonder he used the word good news. So the, question, the only question that we have left to ask now is this. How should the gospel affect us? Well, I think that there's a bunch of different ways that it should affect us. The first way is, if you haven't believed that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you got to do that. Because here's the reality. The wages of your sin is death. Someone has to pay that price. Either it's you or it's him. He did it already, so you don't have to, but in order to accept that gift, you have to accept that gift. So if you haven't believed the gospel, there's no better day than today. Let, let me just put it that way. Tomorrow is not a guarantee. Five minutes from now is not a guarantee. One second from now is not a guarantee. Why wait? Uh, I, I've often had conversations with people who are like, yeah, I think I'll follow Jesus later, but just not now. I think I'll follow Jesus later, just not now. I'm like, I've had so many conversations where I just ask this simple question, why are you waiting? And they say, I don't have a good reason. <laughs> and I suspect that that's true for almost everyone. I don't have a good reason to wait to follow Jesus. If I think that he really is the son of God, if I think that he really did rise from the dead, if I really believe the gospel, why am I waiting to follow him? It doesn't make any, or it doesn't make any sense. All right, so that's the first thing we should do. The second thing is we should proclaim it. Having the good news of Jesus and keeping it to yourself is worse, this is an illustration that I'm stealing from somebody else, it's worse than having the cure to cancer and keeping it to yourself. You have the cure to hell. I, I, maybe there are people sitting in this room who don't believe that hell is a real place. Jesus believed that hell was a real place. Let me just put it to you that way. Jesus believed that hell was a real place and that real people are actually going to be there. 
If you believe that hell is a real place and you have the solution, which is Jesus, and you don't tell people, that's worse than keeping the, 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 the cure to cancer to yourself. We got to share it. And I'm not saying you got to go like fly a sign on the side of the road necessarily, unless God's calling you to do something like that, of course. I'm, I have no problem with that, but I'm not saying you have to. But I am saying that there, there are people in your life right now today who don't know Jesus, and it's your responsibility to tell them. Last night, Taylor and I went to a 4th of July party in our neighborhood, and we sat across from a 25-year-old kid who grew up Catholic but didn't know anything about Jesus. And all we did was share our stories with him for like 20 minutes. We just were like, yeah, Jesus did this in my life, and he did this in my life, and man, he did this in my life, and he did this in my life, and this kid was like, wow, that's amazing. He didn't decide to follow Jesus right then and there, but we shared what God was doing, and, and that was enough for him. And, and he asked questions about, well, what do you believe about this, and what do you believe about this, and we we're just sharing. All we did was just share. So don't feel like you have to stand in front of a group of people and be like, thus saith the Lord. It's enough for you just to share your story. Simple. Anybody in here ever see God do something crazy in their life? Like something like where he really moved and you can only attribute it to him? Maybe you've seen that happen twice? That's all you got. You've got God's stories to share. The third thing that I think it should do is the gospel should impact every, every little aspect of our life. Every fiber of our life. We think of it in the sense of salvation, but the good news of Jesus is not just intended for your salvation, it's intended for everything. If you read the book of Ephesians, what you'll discover is that the gospel should impact our relationships. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, if you're not loving your wives unto death, if you're not dying to yourself on a day-to-day -day basis for the sake of your wife, you're not loving her like Jesus commanded you to. Children, obey your parents. There's not a lot of kids in here, right? But <laughs> children, you're supposed to obey your parents. It, the gospel is designed to impact every aspect of our life. It should impact our, our, our relationships with one another. Are we making the other person more important than ourselves in any given conflict? One of the biggest complaints about the church is how mean we are to each other. Are we making one another more important? The gospel should impact our relationships with one another. The gospel should impact how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we spend our resources. It should impact all of who we are. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, it should impact us. If, you, if the only impact that you see in your life as a result of claiming that you're a Christian is that you come to church on a Sunday morning, then you have not been impacted by Jesus. Do you see the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? I count so I know I don't forget one. There are nine. How, do you see yourself loving others more passionately, more vividly than ever before? Do you see yourself putting others first? Do you see yourself putting Jesus first in your finances? or in how you spend your time. If he's not first, you gotta ask yourself the question, have I really decided to follow him? Is he really the Lord of my life? Do I have more to surrender to him? Have I really truly believed 
the gospel. The good news should impact everything. Father, we praise you. You are good. We lift your name on high. Thank you for what you've accomplished in our lives. Thank you that in simple terms, you came, you lived a perfect life, you died on the cross for our sins, you were buried, and three days later you rose again. Thank you for that amazing good news. Thank you that you are the king. We worship you as king, as God, as the one in charge of all, above all, and through all. You alone are Lord. You alone are God. Father, I pray that you would knock us off the, the, if we're the ones sitting on the throne of our life, I pray that you would knock us off. Father, if it's someone else in our life who sits on the throne of our life, I pray that you would help us to knock them off. Father, if it's, if it's uh, something in our life, like money or, or power, Father, I pray that you would help us to knock that off the throne of our life and seat you there in your appropriate place. Help us to be impacted by your good news. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't live another day with a partial good news or a half the good news or uh, just a minute part of the good news, but Lord, that your good news would impact every aspect of who we are. Lord, that we would see it in our lives. Lord, that we would see it in the fruit of what we do and what we say and who we are. Father, we pray truly for more of your kingdom to come in our lives and in our world and more of your will to be done in our lives and in our world. And Lord, while we're here, thank you for this nation that we get to be free to proclaim you. I've shaken the hands of so many people around the world who don't get to be free. And it's debilitating and heartbreaking. But Lord, we also pray for revival in this nation. Lord, we pray that we would turn our eyes back to you. And Father, I believe that the way that we're going to see revival in this nation is for each of us to take on the responsibility that you've given us to share with those who are around us. Lord, that's how we're going to see revival. Lord, please bring revival. We do truly, in Jesus' name, ask for revival. Lord, that our neighborhoods and our cities and our nation would be transformed because of you. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.